a stage play about the abuse of a boy in state care and the lifelong emotional damage that came from that traumatic time is about to be broadcast as a radio drama. The bold move is partly due to COVID-19 interrupting a planned tour of A Boy Called Piano. It had premiered in Wellington in 2019 as a development season for the work that tells the story of playwright Fa'amuana John Luafutu's harrowing story. It was a follow-up to his earlier play, The White Guitar, that looked at his troubled relationship with his children. Now, instead of sitting and waiting for theatres to reopen, John and his collaborators, Nina Nawalawolo and Tom McCrory, opted to adapt the script for A Boy Called Piano so it can work on radio. You'll hear the full play next week on RNZ National's classic drama here on Standing Room Only. Today, we hear the story behind the adaptation, starting with Nina. Obviously, uh, working with Fatmoana and um, him being a survivor and telling his own story and beginning it uh, with three of the boys being 11 years old, well, it's just such a brave story to tell and the fact that, um, you know, we follow three young children into the heart of darkness and, you know, we took a very long time to think how we stage, how one stages a piece of work when you're looking at very, very really deep, dark themes and how one sort of brings the light into these moments, and how to translate something that's a very visual work into into just thinking about the atmosphere and the environments that we're exploring, obviously, in boys' homes, children in isolation, and it being a Samoan and two Māori characters, um, and thinking about how you get the cultural elements within because of where, where children go to when they're at their most desperate, and how to translate that into radio. So it was a great process for us to think how one you know, takes that work and places it just all with audio. Whamuana, when I spoke yes. to you, it was just before the theatre performance. Your son oh, okay. was here and, and yeah. performed an excerpt, and we were all in tears <laughs> um, back there listening to this. The, the response that you had to the stage, to being on stage... This is your story, this is your pain, this is your hope mm. in this work. What was that like for you to see people's response to it? I was very moved and um, the reason why I got involved in theatre and that uh, seen my life being reborn again, you know, and, um, and seeing people react, that's why I got involved with writing and telling my story is to help initiate change within people who... Um, went through the same kind of life as mine. I'm very wrapped with the reaction that people have had. A lot of old people came and said, that's my story. Some people were crying in a theatre and to see that kind of reaction was really moving for me because it was really moving writing about it. And to adapt the play into a radio thing too was a, another term, part of learning for me as a writer because, you know, writing for radio was different from writing for theatre and me and Tom, my mate, we... Um, had to go through the script again and write it so it suits radio. The Royal Commission came to see the play and then many, many of the staff came and um, they actually approached us to work alongside them to think about how we could en- encourage other people to come forward. So we actually you know, made a documentary which is aimed at um, long-term prisoners and people who have been through the same experience mm. You know, I have to keep thinking about John and who he's speaking to and the fact that we're trying to speak to people that are people that were with him or in that inside the homes, going to very key places that John felt within his memory. Also his bravery to go back to the boys' homes and capture him 
in um, Levin and capture him in these places, you know, digitally. Going back to the home, as Nina said, was incredibly brave. How did you go through that? That's where the bonding comes in with other kids. And so I made friends with uh, a half-caste Māori boy and a Māori... And they were teaching me Māori. I was teaching them things about my culture, and that's how we find comfort. We found comfort in the bonding of our friendships, you know, even though we're from different cultures and that. I wasn't still uh, speaking English fluently, you know, and so they were helping me with that, you know. And so, yeah, I'll teach them some Samoan duty words, and I'll teach me Māori duty words. And So not all the memories of that place were hard for you when you went back to that place were there also memories of those friendships yes those were those were the tender moments that helped me keep going in the writing process as well as being in present time back in the past it was my friendship with those guys you know the bonding of um human spirits in the time of pain and um you know we shared a pain together and we became mates for life for it you know my mum turns to me but i myself tama Biangu, best way you change your life this time. You know, forever, my love. for you. She starts tearing up. <laughs> oh, now, now, Mrs. Salele, Piago will be all right. I'm recommending that he be put into care at Owairaka Boy's home. He'll be able to go to school there. Uh, they have a nice garden, a footy field. Uh, they will make him into a good lad. The court door room opens. When we put together the structure of the play, we decided to really set the play inside a hearing setting so that the journey back into childhood was, was the reliving of memory because of obviously to to travel back into the stories, to travel back into the experience. And throughout the whole writing process, that, in fact, was was the delicacy of the writing process with John and I, was just taking our time, and when we needed to stop, stop, and the courage of Fatamwana to actually go back into those memories uh, and relive them, essentially, and then represent them as a gift to an audience as a way to try and create healing, wouldn't you say? Bang on. It was really hard. You know, people ask me, how did you do it? And, um, yeah, so it was really hard because, like Tom said, you know, I had to go back to that 11-year-old hurt kid in the cell and write from that perspective. Tom, you've, you've written for radio before, and it is a certain skill, the, the radio play, because it is... It's the theatre of the mind. It's very powerful, I think, because it is about imagination. You can't just sit back and watch. You know, you have to be involved in it. So how have you, how have you approached this, and how different is the radio play to the work on stage? It's really different. That was, one of the, that was the, another of the opportunities that writing and adapting this for radio offered us was, you know, again, it's, it's not about what the obstacles are, what you can't do because, you, you know, it's the doorways that open through radio through the power of suggestion, through the power of sound, through the power of hearing a voice, which we didn't hear. For example, you know, we're able to bring the mothers actually literally into the play itself. So where we spoke about them on stage, in the radio play, we heard their tears, we heard their voices. Mm. We heard the voice of John's great-grandmother telling her whakngongo. Whakngongo, yeah. Yeah, a traditional Samoan tale to him as a child. I dreamt of my great-grandmother 
Her close cropped hair all white. By the big folly, with a cookhouse behind, is a small folly where my great grandmother stays. At night, I sleep by her and my cousin Emmy. I can hear the pigs grunting under the house. Graham tells us to farm all, and we go to sleep. Outside, the white sands reflect the moonlight. We were able to travel into different kinds of environments through the ear, just through the brilliant uh, suggestion of sound that Mark Chesterman and Adam brought to the composition of the piece, and also the music of Mark Vanilao. Yes. We have to acknowledge this, which was live on stage, but again, with radio, he was able to engage with in a whole other level of dynamics. We had to adjust the piano in the theatre to deal with the proximity to the audience. In the studio, he was able to really open that instrument up. Mm. And so, musically, that voice of the piano, which is so central and represents the voice of the mother inside the play, was is is so much more present mm. in a, it because it it's really speaking to the ear. Yes, uh, yeah. which is a part of the play, but with the radio version. That dimension really opens up. Is the, is the whole world of sound, the way the children, when they're in the isolation cells, communicate through tapping on the pipes to each other, the way in which they hear the sounds because they're isolated. Disobeying an order. That is a breach of discipline. You are a bad example to the other boys. Part of a poisonous little group of troublemakers. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I warned you. I will not tolerate this disregard for my officers. You will spend seven days in solitary confinement on security. Take him away. Salute the house, master. He takes me down to the security block. Strip! I feel the eyes of the master on me. I walk towards what's supposed to be a window. A dirty, holy mattress for a bed. A blue bucket for a toilet. I hear shoes squeaking on the wooden floor, getting closer. The door flings open. Move! The radio play kind of dimensionally evolved the play. Mm. It actually opened up all sorts of new possibilities because sound within that world of the boys' home is mm. so powerful. The sound of footsteps approaching down buckets. the corridor, the sound of metal buckets falling, you know. Things which you almost... They're incidental in a stage version but are so intrinsic to the radio version mm. and so suggestive. But we learnt a lot more about the story, actually, through adaptation. Mm. John, how are you doing? Because you mentioned before that you've relived this and you've rewritten and you've worked you know, mm. on the documentary and you've worked on the radio play. This is, this is your story. Are you feeling that this, is, this whole process, all of these processes have helped you? I mean, are you feeling in a good place? Yes, I'm in a good place. But, uh, yeah, I was saying to Tom, you know, we've been at this for seven years now and I feel like I've OD'd on myself. 
Are you over it? <laughs> in, in a funny way, but I'm glad that the story's been aired in all these different vehicles, you know, um, the documentary, the thing, because really we just want to tell a story to help initiate positive change for those that need it. And conversations. Yes, so, what, yeah. yes, that's right. So once you yeah. were able to talk about, as Tom said before, yeah. talk about things that you had yeah. never spoken well, about before. Well, that's right. It's it's about suppressing pain, and that's so far down that you don't look at it, but yet you don't realise that it's affecting your adult behaviour. You know, I wasn't aware that I had a little kid buried down in me. I hurt a little child that I carried around right to adulthood, and that child came out to play when I got drunk with my mates and would be out fighting and committing crime and that, but the care that they've given me as as my new parents, the government, I just was exposed to a whole lot of things that I wouldn't have been exposed to in my real family, you know, like sexual abuse, stuff like that, you know, um, mean behaviour towards you, you know, disciplinary stuff that was just over the top, you know. Uh, those are the things that made me decide that I'm going to be a non-conformist and stuff society and give the bird to everything and everybody and result of that is you end up hating society and end up eventually hating yourself you know and a lot of mates like me that's what it is in them in themselves they really hate themselves but really they hate the feeling of that hurt in the child that they've managed to bury right down you know because why do people hide away pain you know but uh with being involved with all that i have been with tom and the conch and nina and that it helped bring it all out you in a way peace. that I can feel yeah. better, yeah. You found peace? Yes, I found peace. I've, uh, I've forgiven myself and forgiven a lot of things that happened to me, but I'll never forget it. But um, I just hope that by sharing it, it will help some of my mates who are still struggling with that and some of the kids that are still coming through. In my time, it was um, I was a state ward, but over the years they changed the label. The latest one is, of course, Oranga Tamariki, but um, it had different names. So then they changed the labels... Give it Maori names or whatever, but the system is still the same, and that's what I fight against, you know, by being involved in all this. The system needs to change. Like I said, more concrete for jails is not the answer, eh? I, I believe radio was a lifeline to you, um, John, when you were in prison. Yeah, well, that's all we used to listen to, you know, like the radio. The radio is a thing, eh, you know, and it's made me really identify what we're doing here with the radio play because it's all about the, um, the sense of the mind and we're talking about the hearing senses of the human body and I'm well aware that a lot of people can't come to theatre because they might be blind or something like that, you know, and they can't see but, you know, they can hear so I'm really grateful that a lot more people will be able to hear it you know. Music as well and the way that music came to you you know, amazing guitar player, like, you know (laughs) and I don't want to open up a whole other conversation (laughs) but I love the beautiful story you told me about when the Woodstock concert was broadcast. Oh, that's right. And I, yeah, I locked myself up in the cell so I can listen to the whole concert. I wanted to hear <laughs> Jimmy play in Santana. Yeah. So, yeah, Just, that's one of my favourite music pieces was uh, that sad bit at the end at Hendrix play and the guys picking up all the rubbish in yeah. the film. Melancholic to me, that piece of music from Hendrix. And When Cries Mary was another one that reminded me of my mum a lot, you know, when mm. I first went to the boys' home. Those sort of songs we're playing, yeah. Nina, you've got all these all these aspects with this story. Will we see the play back on stage? Because we started by saying that you're just about to go on tour mm. and then the pandemic hit. You've made the most of that opportunity. You've gone deeper into the story um, and produced it in different ways. But that first life of that theatre work that you loved yes. and, and worked on so, so much, will we see it 
on stage? Will it exist still? Yes, well, we're absolutely hoping to, um, you know, begin again. Of course, we were with tour makers and um, we, we, we began it in Auckland with Auckland Live and so we really would love to bring it back next year and then, you know, tour it around. And so it's all about the climate and when things are ready to go in New Zealand. But we would, um, we're really keen to take that opportunity and, and take it out to the audiences because, of course, the Wellington season was a little development season and the idea was it was to, you know, was was to place it in Auckland as the premiere because, you know, the play is set and it begins, the story begins in Auckland um, in 19... 19- 63 and um, at the Auckland courtrooms there so you know um, yeah we'd love that opportunity Whaamoana John Luafutu, Nina Nawalawalo and Tom Rokori and there'll be a longer version of that item on the Standing Room Only webpage A Boy Called Piano is our drama next Sunday at 3. After the news we're at the movies, the fascinating story of the New Zealand Chinese Growers Monthly Journal and stranded Kiwi tenor Cameron Barclay <laughs> 